Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire, as was already prayed, that uh, you would, in fact, intervene in our country. You would desire that you would preserve what was established by godly men and that we might be able to continue to uh, freely present the gospel and teach the word, a dark world. But as was prayed, we also submit to your will, knowing that you are sovereign, desiring that you would, in fact, continue to work out the plan that you have, that we would uh, rest in you and trust in you, knowing that you obviously know far better than us what the future holds, and we just desire to be faithful in the midst of whatever. And Lord, we want to praise you in the midst of whatever as well, as we look at this very important passage in the book of Romans, that it would cement itself in our thinking and in our minds and remind us every day that you are to be praised in every circumstance, in every in every situation. We just commit our time in Jesus' name. Well, to start off, I want to thank Nate for filling in. I heard that he did a great job, so his Lord. That's why, we, that's why we asked him, right? This morning, we're going to look at uh, the heart of, I think, the book of Romans, what Paul has been building towards in terms of the doctrine that he's teaching should elicit within us praise, should elicit within us a recognition that God not only is sovereign over all things, but God has a great plan and he's been pleased to reveal some aspects of it. We're not even capable of understanding every aspect. So Romans eleven twenty-eight through 36 is basically at the heart of uh, what Paul has been gearing, at least in from chapters 9 through 11. But the last part, 33 through 36, I think is a conclusion to everything that he's talked about beginning in actually verse 1 after his introduction and his doctrine section. And uh, Paul has arrived at that point where you can even sense how full of joy he is. For I do not want you, brethren, verse 25, to be uninformed of this mystery. There's some things relating to the nation of Israel that have not ever been revealed before. And it's that we as Gentiles, the you that you be, lest you be wise in your own estimation, lest we think that the church is the end all of God's plan, is what God has intended in all time, when in reality, history is Jewish. So we are not to be wise in our own estimation, that a partial, and here's the mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, there's an entire era where Gentiles are on an equal basis before God, or can be, as they trust in Israel's Messiah. And during that time frame, there's a partial hardening of, of Israel. That is not revealed in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. And at the end of that, and thus all Israel will be saved just as it is written, so we have the biblical basis for the salvation of Israel. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. I think referring to the new covenant when they will come into a intimate saving relationship with him and deliverance from the difficult time of the tribulation. 
And that's the occasion when I will take away their sins. So he quotes from Isaiah chapter 59 and probably the last phrase. And that brings us basically to the passage that we want to look at today. Paul dealing with Jews and Gentiles, the city of Rome. And actually from verse 11, he's kind of focused more on the Gentile mindset, even though both Jew and Gentile, obviously the readers, but the you, the second person address, is primarily for the benefit of the Gentiles, and this passage is part of that, and it also continues into verse 28. And just a quick review of the main context, chapters 9 through 11, Paul is vindicating God's righteousness in his relationship and dealing with Israel, his chosen people. They remain his chosen people. They've been unfaithful. They have essentially rejected him, so he's rejected them. In this church age, they're under God's discipline. And uh, chapter 11 looks forward to a future restoration and uh, salvation in its broad sense. It includes regeneration, but it also is bigger than simply justification. It's deliverance from a future tribulation that Paul doesn't mention, but hints at. But we find it in other passages, both old and new. And I think underlying all of chapter 11, if well, actually the whole book, but particularly and especially every once in a while in chapter 11, he refers or implies what underlies it all are the perfections of God. In other words, God revealing himself. Uh, some people call them attributes. That's an appropriate description, but I prefer the word perfections because we have attributes, but we are far from perfect. God has attributes, but his are perfect, so we can call them perfections. In verse 12, he hints at the faithfulness of God, faithful to the promises that he's made. After 11 verse 12, 20 emphasizes his graciousness to believing Gentiles. This kind of underlies that passage. Kindness as well in verse 22 to the believing Gentiles. His severity, verse 22, in fact, that's one of the words that's used in that passage along with the kindness word. Severity to the hardened Jews, not to the remnant of Jews that have believed, but to those that have rejected the Messiah. His omnipotence underlies verse 23. He is able to restore the Jewish people. He's omnipotent. And also because he is sovereign, verse 25, sovereign not only over the nation of Israel, but over all of history. And we saw last time that we were in Romans, his loyal and committed love and the focus, particularly the love for Israel. Now, this passage is going to continue and it's going to culminate in that grand and great praise at the end of chapter 11. So add to our little chart here of perfections that underlie the passage. So the outline here, we're looking at the future restoration, chapter 11, future restoration of Israel. There's always been a remnant. So God has always kept for himself within Israel, a remnant within Israel, first 10 verses of chapter 11. 
and he's reserving for the future a restoration of that same people, the nation, broadly, 11 through 32, that's where we're at. And there's even purposes that God is using for Israel's failure, first 11 through 16, and part of the explanation of that is the parable of the olive trees, 11, 17 through 24. And we're going to complete this portion, promise of Israel's restoration. We looked at 25, 27. We'll pick up in verse 28. We saw the deliverance of hardened Israel in the future. All Israel will be saved along with the biblical basis for it. And now he's going to give something of a review, if you will, or a reiterating of many of the things that he's already discussed beginning in verse 11. So nothing new here, and uh, we can go through it rather quickly. I intend to spend a lot of time, 28 through 32, the last part, but uh, just to look at some of the highlights, because this is what he's doing. He's basically highlighting things that he's already talked about kind of reinforcing verses 25 through 27, reinforcing the idea of that future deliverance of all Israel. And he begins 28 and 29, one long sentence, the disposition of God, I'm using D as an alliteration, toward the Jews, and like to include the whole sentence, so 28 through 29, we kind of get the whole thought. So from the standpoint of the gospel, main clause here, they are enemies for your sake, at least the first independent clause, but from the standpoint of God's choice, and then we have they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, another independent clause, then we have another a subordinate clause verse for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So let's take a look at each one quickly, but vigilantly. From the standpoint of the gospel, who is the they in this context? The Jews. I've already given it away. Again, he's writing from the standpoint of the Gentile. And if the they refers to the the Jewish people or the Jewish contingent, and remember, throughout, he's speaking very broadly. He's speaking nationally in reference to the Jew. Sometimes he's referring to the totality, if you will, all of Israel. And sometimes he is referring to the, the remnant within the broader totality. But in this context, he's looking primarily at the aspect of the those that are hardened. Remember, he used that phrase. In fact, he gives a gives us another word or another term in a series of several that we've seen through chapters 9 through chapters 11. So enemies for your sake, that's the focus on the Gentiles. So he has a purpose behind using even the unresponsiveness of his people and from the standpoint of the gospel, he, he uses a very st- strong phrase here. They are enemies. Does anyone remember where that concept occurs before? If you've been with us in our study, it was several years ago when we, we were in passage. Anyone remember where someone is described as an enemy of God? And what is the context of that? That Romans 5 8, he talks about uh, Christians. And for salvation? Yep. 
And in that context, he's talking about all unbelievers, basically. In other words, all unbelievers, chapter 5. Now, it's in the section of those that are justified, so they're believers, but he refers to them before they came into a saving relationship. It would, would include Jew and Gentile, but the emphasis would be anyone that doesn't know Christ is an enemy of God. And he's putting his people, the Jewish people, in the same category as what he did all unbelievers. And it's the little phrase, for your sake. In other words, this opens a door of opportunity for the non-Jewish people that uh, because of their rejection of Messiah, because of their unbelief, uh, God is opening a door of opportunity to Gentiles in general. Not every single one. Remember, he's looking at them very broadly, but now there's an opportunity to respond. And just a reminder of all of the terms that he's used, we won't go over all of these again, but he has referred to the Jews in this context, not because he's necessarily mad at them or down on them, not because he thinks the church has replaced Israel, but just to emphasize the state that Israel finds itself in as a result of rejecting the Messiah. They've stumbled over the stumbling block. They've stumbled over Messiah. They did not obey. He uses a different word there. All the different terms that he's used, 1016, did not obey the gospel. They didn't believe it, and they became obstinate. In fact, you could even start that introduce verse 21, and another word there, uh, unbelief, apetheo. They were hardened, verse 11, or chapter 11, and they stumbled. Different stumbling, different word there. Notice the two, number one and number five there. They are fallen, verse 11 as well. They've transgressed. They have failed, verse 12. Notice all the different words. And they, they are rejected by God, verse 15. And now we have another one. We have enemies, eleven twenty-eight, emphasizing the situation of un believing Israel, enemies, hardened, failed, disbelieving, all of the words, and they are, they're just like the Gentiles. We've gone over all of those. So chapter 5, verse 10, Geneva mentioned verse 8, where they're called enemies. These are the Gentiles primarily, and here he's attaching the same word to those that have rejected the Messiah. But from the standpoint of God's choice, Here's another word that we have looked at very carefully in several passages. In fact, more passages in Romans 9 through 11 than probably any other section in the book of Romans and any other section of other passages in other places as well. From the standpoint of God's choice, in other words, God's sovereign election, God's sovereign choice, that's that same Greek word that we've looked at. We did a word study on it when we were in chapter 9. I gave you kind of an overview of that whole doctrine. Uh, from that perspective, from the perspective of God's sovereign and uh, electing position, from that possession, they are beloved. Same people. The ones that are enemies because of unbelief are still beloved. In other words, positionally and from the perspective of God and from perspective of God's working, Jewish people are beloved. And not only that, they are elect, you might say. 
And this is for the sake of the Father. So they are elect. That's the Greek word. And now we have, uh, again, he also looks ahead and speaks of all of the glorious terms that await Israel when they do believe a great salvation awaits them. Verse 11, that is very, very rich. Verse 12, the riches of God's salvation. And they, we anticipate a fulfillment of all that God promised them in verse 12. And even, his, even Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is magnified in relation to Israel. Then we have the verb form for salvation, verse 14, and then later on in verse 26. They will be reconciled in the future, verse 15, and accepted. Instead of enemies, they will be accepted. And now we can add two more. They are elect or choice, ek loge, the, the word that we looked at in some detail. 11.28, and then also same verse, beloved agape tas. So several Greek glorious terms put in contrast to all of the negative words that we've looked at as well. But all of these apply in the future and all relate to what God will do in the nation of Israel in the future. And it's for the sake of the fathers. And what he's referring to, remember the olive tree, the roots, referred to the fathers in that context. Because of the, the covenant that God entered into, in, or 29, for the gifts, uh, the gracious gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So we have kind of a reminder of that same concept it's for the sake of all of what God has entered into covenant with Abraham, reiterated to Isaac, and then re-given to Jacob. For the sake of the fathers, nothing has changed in terms of Israel's future. God is going to restore them. So you can see he's reiterating basically what he said in verses 25 through 27. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what God has promised, what God has planned will not change. He's immutable. You could even say that that underlies what uh, God is saying here. The gifts there, as I've already said, are gracious gifts. The word has grace as part of the root of the word. So they are gifts that are undeserved, gifts that we cannot earn. They are given freely and uh, because of uh, God's gracious, graciousness and the calling of God. Uh, Israel is called. Israel is part of God's plan, God, what God initiated, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And God is not going to change one iota of what he's promised or what he's entered in, and especially what he's entered into a covenant with. So we have God's loyal love emphasized in this passage as well. So we have the disposition towards Jews, 28 and 29, and now he's going to extend that disposition toward Gentiles and Jews, verses 30 through 32. For just as you once were disobedient to God, uh, one long sentence again, but now have been shown mercy. He's going to introduce the theme of mercy. That also has been stated before. Mercy because of their disobedience. Remember his discussion of Gentiles, don't be arrogant, don't be conceited, 
God could set Gentiles aside. And in fact, uh, we know from other passages that God is going to go back and deal with the nation of Israel. And it's all on the basis of mercy and uh, a kind of a implied warning here because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, to you Gentiles, he's still talking about the Gentiles, referring back to the they of the Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy. So the right. mercy, notice three times in the passage. Go ahead. Who's that, Nate? No, it's, no, it's Denise. Oh, oh Denise. <laughs> Good morning. Yes, I, I just wanted to ask, and I know it's not uh, following according to the mercy that God shows to the uh, to the Jews, but because it says that it is um, irrevocable, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, does that not seem to imply or at least um, give us the uh, affirmation that that is exactly what applies to everyone who comes to salvation? Yes, yes, because he's made not a covenant, but he has entered into a relationship that has lots of promises. Absolutely. And we are called. We are the called as well. And we have received the gift of eternal life. And that comes with assurances. That's the end of Romans 8. So, yes, that would apply to us as well. Good comment there. Thank you, Ryan. You're welcome. For, now he's kind of expanding this, for just as you once were disobedient to God. Who's the you here? The Gentiles. Same you, just as you Gentiles once were disobedient to God. We can view this kind of broadly and include all of past history. In fact, we can chart all of this on a timeline. In fact, that, that's what I've done. All of world history, Gentiles have been disobedient. So we can say disobedience of Gentiles from uh, Adam all the way to the time of Messiah, other than a few individuals here and there. The general characteristic of Gentiles, in fact, God calls Abraham out from the nations, out from the ethne, the, the Gentiles, and creates his own nation because of Gentile disobedience. But now, with the coming of Messiah, have been shown mercy. Now, there's going to be a period of time that is introduced by Messiah and the free access simply bought on the basis of faith. That's chapters one through eight. Now have been shown mercy. And we could put that on our timeline. So Gentile disobedience to the time of Messiah. But those that receive Messiah, there's mercy or mercy to all Gentiles. Mercy in that uh, salvation is available. That doesn't mean that everyone responds. Gentiles in general will remain disobedient. But Gentiles are offered mercy, much like Israel was offered mercy in the past. And there's a distinct period of time where God is dealing in a special way to the Gentiles. So we can put this on our timeline from eternity to eternity. And notice it's because of their 
disobedience. There again is Israel rejected their Messiah. Israel rejected God's plan. Israel went its own way. And we have a reminder of that same word that was used before. We saw it in, uh, I think, what was it? Verse 12, I think. So we can add it. We've already had 10 words, 10 negative ones. We have the enemies, and now we have the unbelief word again. We have the noun form here. We had the verb form earlier on that list that I gave you before. So verse 30, unbelieving can be translated. I think a legitimate translation is disobedience. To disbelieve is disobedience. And that's how it's translated in the New American Standard. Literally, you might say it is related to the word of belief with the alpha that negates it, making it unbelief. I just stress that because of uh, the difference in the words there. So we have to end up. Go ahead. Uh, Well, you just briefly mentioned uh, Israel. I'm not talking about the enemies in the context, but but historically, uh, being an example of God showing his mercy, would that be like what they sometimes refer to as the cycle of discipline with Israel? Yes. Yeah, that's why I'm plotting it in these broad strokes. So we have Gentile disobedience, and now we have a period of Gentile mercy, But that last phrase, because of their disobedience from uh, the calling of Israel, we see not only Israel's election, but we also see what Jim is referring to as these cycles that we have of their unbelief and their disobedience from um, the beginning of the nation all the way or the beginning of the people all the way to uh, the time of Messiah, and then capped off with the rejection of the Messiah. So you can look at this in broad strokes as we are doing doing here. And then verse 31, so these also, these, these Jewish descendants of Abraham now have been disobedient. That's kind of the whole theme of chapter 9 and 10. They've been disobedient, so we can put on the slide, in fact, they're hardened. It's another word that Paul uses, Israel's disobedience, and they're they're hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, into a distinct time frame, until the rapture, we develop that concept. So we can look at this broadly as well. It doesn't mean that individual Jews don't respond. That doesn't mean that every Gentile responds, but he's looking at it in its broadest sense. Israel nationally, including hardened Israel, and particularly hardened Israel that is disobedient. That because of the mercy shown to you, the you is the Gentiles again, they also may may now be shown mercy. Now, there is a sense in which mercy is still available to Jewish people. The gospel goes out to Jew and Gentile. So the now can refer to the church age. But in this context, it goes even beyond that as well. In other words, it, I think it anticipates what Paul has been talking about in 20, 25 through 27 that we've been looking at. So I have a question about that. Okay. Uh- well, uh, my impression, uh, 
has been that the Jews remain hardened today. Uh, that, um, so uh, I, I'm wondering now if they can now be shown mercy, if uh, that means that the, the end of uh, the hardening process has already occurred, and so individual Jews uh, can be saved, of course. Um, but that, it seems like the hardening is removed as a nation. No, no, I, no, I think uh, the hardening continues until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I think the hardening of Israel remains until the reference that he used in verse 25 remains until the church age ends, which would be at the rapture. So what does it mean that they can now be shown mercy now? On the same basis that any nation, any Gentile, in fact, keep in mind the word ethne can be translated nation or nations, or it can be translated Gentile. It's the same word. And in some context, the translators translated as nations, referring to all peoples outside of the nation of Israel. So on the basis of the gospel going out to every nation, some Jews can still, or they receive the same mercy. They're under the same mercy that any any other Gentile or non-Jewish person receives mercy. And I think that's what he's talking about. But the hardness remains in terms of the broader national Israel. In other words, as a nation, they're not going to respond until I think the end of the church age, and then we have the chronology. In fact, we could plot that Israel's mercy and deliverance that we've been looking at in the passages that we've been dealing with. And that comes immediately before the the kingdom that Messiah establishes when he returns. So here's another slide of all of world history on one slide that goes from eternity to eternity, focusing on uh, God's mercy and man's disobedience, including both Jew and Gentile. Hey, Ray. Yep. This is Nate. Before you go move on to the next slide, I just wanted to, to comment that this is a, seems to me to be an, an excellent slide and a good summation of chapters 9 10 and 11 that this is basically paul it's paul's point with regards to god's sovereignty and dealing with israel and sometimes we really get hung up on the individual election components in chapter 9 and we kind of lose sight of what paul's big point is and that's exactly what you're presenting here that um you know god with, re, with respect to Israel, God was focused on Israel prior to the Messiah, and now because of their disobedience, it's opened a door to where God's focus is largely on the Gentiles, and and as far as that relates to individual elections, sometimes we forget that there's other issues in play, such as where one falls within this framework that God has decided to do kind of at a higher level or a higher plane. And, and his decision in relation to his outworking of, of his plan. Um, but even within, as you mentioned, this plan, um, you know, individual Gentiles could come to faith in the pre-Messiah times, and individual Israelites can come to faith in the post-Messiah time. But as a broad stroke, that this is uh, God's outworking and, and what he's doing right now in history. 
So I, I love this slide. Yeah, exactly. So it is a summation as I, as I kind of introduced it and kind of a reiterating of what he's talked about throughout nine through 11. He's coming to a conclusion here. Then the last verse of this paragraph for God, and this is, this is the point he's getting at. God has made all mankind, you might say, accountable, and all mankind falls short. And the passage says, for God has shut up all in disobedience. In other words, he has demonstrated that all mankind, because of sin, ends up in this category of disobedience. And in fact, in the category of enemies such that no one has any claim on God. No one can say, God owes me. No one can say, well, God is unfair in that he has chosen some and not others because God has shut up all in disobedience. And in this context, the all is looking at broadly Jew and Gentile, and the purpose is so that he may show mercy to all. In other words, that he may demonstrate that he is a merciful God, that he, in fact, is free in grace. And when you think of mercy, mercy is, a, is like a grace word. It, it's, it's a different word, but it has uh, similar ideas in that uh, mercy is not something that can be earned. Mercy is not something that is deserved. Uh, mercy is on the basis of the one that expresses the mercy. And God is free anyway. to all. See? Yeah, you know, since humans first set foot on earth with Adam and Eve, he could have ended it all right there but he didn't. Exactly. Yeah, he could have ended it all right there, and he would have been perfectly just, perfectly right. holy, perfectly just. Exactly. Good point. Right. Go ahead, David. Uh, it reminds me of Hebrews 10.10, 10, by which we are sanctified through the offering of body of Jesus Christ once for all. Yep. Yep. So Everybody. the last, last part of our little chart here, is God is going to show mercy to all, and there's going to be even a period of time where that mercy will be very evident. It'll be in permitting both Jew and Gentile into the kingdom. In fact, those of all ages will be able to clearly see that God has bestowed mercy. No one deserves the kingdom. No one deserves God's favor, and it's simply up to God himself. So, we can add another perfection. We see the mercifulness, God, 30 through 32, and the mercy is expressed to, to all. So all have access, you might say, to the holy God. And that moves us to what Paul concludes, I think, the whole book, the whole doctrinal section of the book, 11, 33 to 36, and to stay with my alliteration, there's always been a remnant, remnant always present, restoration yet future, and now we have robust worship of God, 33 to 36. And the main focus of this worship is praise for his incomprehensibility, 33 to 35, 
and he begins with God's person. And uh, because of time, let me just introduce the concept of uh, incomprehensibility, and then we'll look at it further next week and conclude this portion. And I'm inclined next week maybe to uh, not only complete this portion, but give you an introduction to chapters 12 through the end of the book. In fact, if I do it next week or the following week, we will complete the book of Romans. Can you imagine that? You thought you were eternally stuck in the book of Romans. If we don't respond like Paul does, then we have not understood what Paul has been saying in Romans 1 through 8. Now, this isn't Glenn. This is a different riddle. But riddle says we have learned Paul's meaning only when we can join in this ascription of praise. So if you don't fall down and praise him, much like what Paul does in this passage, then we have failed to understand the uh, impact of what Paul is saying in Romans 1 through chapter 11. And I think this is a summation of it. This is kind of the climax. This is what Paul is heading towards in the whole passage and ultimately all things are to glorify God. So he begins, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Amazing. In other words, how unsearchable. In other words, you could not figure them out. You couldn't use science. You couldn't use logic. You couldn't use philosophy to figure out his judgments. They're unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. So what we have here, we could add another perfection, the immensity of God, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, the next passage here, I see, now there's, it's not totally clear I think the New American Standard kind of brings it out with the kind of the parallel preposition of there. Notice the of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It kind of makes a little division there. But I see the three in parallel. In other words, the depth, the immensity, the greatness of God. There's a richness to it. And there's a wisdom to this depth of who God is and a depth to the knowledge of God such that no one can truly grasp it, no one can truly understand it. That introduces us to the immensity and the incomprehensibility of God. So we have another perfection, a couple of perfections here, immensity, wisdom, the knowledge. Underlying that is his omniscience. Uh, beyond what any of us could grasp or or understand, because he knows all things. And then the, the next part of the verse is not only his person, he praises God for his person, but he praises for his works. How unsearchable are his judgments, and you could include unfathomable his ways. We have a couple of interesting Greek words. Uh, you could translate the Greek word there, Inscrutable, unfathomable, 
impossible to understand. There are aspects of what God has has even taught. Now, when we think of incomprehensibility, we think in terms of there are many things that God has not revealed that are beyond our comprehension and beyond what we can grasp and understand. And there's no way that we can know them apart from his revelation. But the interesting thing is this is in a context of God already revealing something. So even that that has been revealed by God is inscrutable, is unfathomable, impossible to understand in its fullest extent. And we've come across a lot of those concepts and I'll mention a few of them and we'll look at a couple of them next week. But just as an example, we've been talking about this doctrine of election and how it fits and how does the justice of God fit in with it all? Well, there are aspects of it that we probably will never be able to grasp and fully understand because God's judgments, in other words, God's decisions, you might say, I think judgments here is in a broader sense, are impossible to understand. So we'll look at the incomprehensibility of God next week, and I'll give you some other passages. In fact, let me just conclude with one passage, and then we'll pick up next week. For example, Job eleven seven in a series of questions. Can you discover the depths of God? You just refer to the depths here in Romans. No, the answer. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The answer implied is no. They are high as the heavens, and we can't reach them. What can you do? You can't get them deeper than she all. What can you know? We can't know them. Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Job is capturing for us the incomprehensibility of God and even the things that Paul has written about, even those are beyond our grasp. And the passage is going to end again in continual praise and we'll have to reserve that for for next time. Any comments? Well, I asked Sandy if she would introduce herself today, and then uh, we can have a word of prayer for her and her family. She's south of Denver, and as we're bowing before God's incomprehensibility, either Joe or maybe Joe might want to introduce his mother, and maybe his mother can introduce the whole family. Go ahead, Sandy. Get closer to the microphone, though. Now, can you hear me? Now, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm Sandy Meisinger. Um, okay, I I uh, live in Albuquerque, and I grew up in California um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. My dad worked in San Francisco. And then I went to college at Biola in Southern California, where I met my husband-to-be. He was a music musician, played the vibraharp. But then one day, one day in chapel, um, a professor from Dallas Seminary came, S. Lewis Johnson, and and when George heard him, he said, "That's what I want to do." So he changed his major from music to um, Bible, and and uh, so a year and a half after we were married, we moved to Dallas for four years, and. Um, when we, we had two kids by the time we left there, and then we moved to Minnesota, where he um, took over a, a 
something that had never it was just starting. It was a Bible class, but we were there, turned into a church, and we were there for 20 years about. Um, and then we moved, and we had two more kids. Now, that's where you met uh, the McGillivrays. Yes, and the McGillivrays were, lived there for a while, and um, yeah, we became good friends with them and kept up with them after we they moved back to Albuquerque, and we moved back to California. We moved back to um, Huntington Beach, um, and we were there for about 20 years. And then um, during that time, and my husband was a pastor in Minnesota and California of churches. When we were in California, um, for a few, after a few years, um, we were having a uh, pastor's conference. Our church was having it every year, and they found out that Dallas had hired somebody who um, who actually thought parts, at least parts of Genesis was, I don't remember exactly the word, but not literal um, creation, and I'm not sure what all. And so um, at this pastor's conference, he had all the men who, were from, who had gone to Dallas that came to the pastor's conference stay at our house, and they decided to start Schaefer Seminary to um, have a seminary that was teaching the truth. And um, so then, uh, I don't know, it's maybe 13 years later or something, and we moved to um, Albuquerque, and, and my husband uh, took over the seminary, Didn't have, wasn't a pastor anymore. Now, that was partly under the influence of the McGillivrays as well. It was very much, yeah, the McGillivrays. And I love Albuquerque, and so I've got a lot of mixed feelings about that. I might move to Virginia with my son and his family. Um, and we're just kind of, we're all just praying what to do. And but they're moving there because he's going to be teaching at Quantico, that training place for the FBI. And um, they're planning to move to Fed Fredericksburg, which is in Southern Virginia. And that's it. <laughs> Great. It was Glenn Riddle's idea, actually, for Schaefer to come to Albuquerque. Because uh, Schaefer was considering going to um, Colorado Springs or Dallas or Houston. And uh, Glenn told me one day when we were out for a run, he said, well, why don't you call George and ask him if they had come to Albuquerque? So I did. I called him. <laughs> and George says, we, we don't want to be in a foreign country. We want to be somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so any any prayer things that you'd like to pray that decision that you're having concerning moving possibly are you talking to me yes well just that just wisdom to know what i should do and uh and for, and so, for joe for joe and his family they'll find a church yeah, they're definitely moving um yeah. in the next well soon in the next six months somewhere in there Okay. Who'd like to close for us then? Jim, do you want to do it? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, Father, so thankful uh, for uh, the lesson today and uh, lifting up the, uh, the concept of glorifying God and appreciating uh, his perfections. Uh, and uh, Lord, so help us as we uh, walk uh, to be mindful and focused on who you really are, uh, that we might live as encouraged people 
and sources of encouragement for others, bringing glory to you and and uh, being disciples and, and vessels of salvation to those who you bring in our lives that are unsaved. I do pray for Sandy as uh, she considers uh, what uh, God has in mind uh, for her life and uh, for Joe as well as he moves uh, to uh, take on the responsibilities of, of uh, education for FBI a- agents. Um, so, Lord, uh, give them uh, clarity and, and wisdom on this move and provision for the uh, for the uh, a place where they'll live uh, as well. And uh, thank you for the uh, time that we've had here together and for all those that are in this class today. I, I pray that uh, you will richly bless their lives in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Final goodbyes before we sign off for the day. Bye, everyone. Good week. Bye. Thank you. See you all later. Bye-bye. God bless. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.